We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is the Honorable Judge Nelson Diaz, a lifelong advocate for civil and human rights and a champion of economic development and housing reform. Whether as a leader in economic development, a pioneer in court reform, a champion of public housing, or an advocate in fair housing, Judge Diaz never stopped fighting for fairness. A trailblazer, Nelson became the first Puerto Rican attorney and judge in Pennsylvania, the first Puerto Rican White House fellow, and the first minority general counsel at HUD, the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development. A partner in a major law firm, Doworth Paxson, and a corporate board director for Fortune 100 companies. Although he was the first, he never wants to be the last. Thankfully, he's written his story in a book titled Not From Here, Not From There, a story of an outsider who struggled his way to the inside. Judge Diaz offers powerful lessons on finding a place in the world by creating spaces where everyone is welcome. What I appreciate most about you, Judge Diaz, is your bravery to be a champion and activist for civil rights, court reform, fair housing, and bilingual education, you open doors. Welcome to ROG, Nelson. Thank you, Shannon. I'm really privileged to be with you, and congratulations on your podcast. Uh, I envy your opportunity to reach such a large population, and it's important that people get content since television is not worth it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. You I got think... millions of channels. Millions of channels and nothing to see. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. And we we want to give people something to be inspired by and that there's hope in the world, that there's great leaders like you out there who are doing the work. And so this particular series, our Latino Hispanic Heritage Month series, is intended to amplify the voices to understand more about your lived experience and to really honor your contributions. So I think a great way to do that is to better understand the meaning from you of not from here, not from there. Yeah, the the emphasis and the title uh, can apply to a lot of immigrants as well. Um, I've spoken up in Lancaster, for example, and uh, an Italian immigrant comes up to me and he says, oh, you know, I understand what you're talking about, but not from here. I had dinner with a Chinese who uh, was born in Minnesota, has been in Minnesota his whole life, and he's a top patent lawyer. And he says, oh, I understand now what it means, not from here, not from there. In fact, he wrote an article after that. And so it's a, it's a struggle of uh, being in America and understanding how to enforce your constitutional rights and then trying to help uh, in the country that you may have come from where they don't want you anymore. They think you're an American now and not a, and not a Puerto Rican. So, you know, the, that, that whole struggle back and forth uh, is really something that happens uh, to a lot of us in the generational change in America. And so you came to America as a child, literally in your mother's belly, 
Could you help us understand the experience of being in the first wave of Puerto Rican immigrants post-World War II? Yeah, and the, the Industrial Revolution was, was really starting right after the war, uh, World War II. And there was a need for workers in the United States. And Puerto Rico was a very, very poor country. So there was a, a relationship that developed between the new recent governor, uh, Muñoz Marín, and then the uh, president uh, of the country, Roosevelt Truman, to try uh, to bring workers into the country. And since they were all citizens by birthright, it was an easy process. So Muñoz Marín developed a migrants program where they brought people in ships all the way from Puerto Rico, pretty much to New York, Chicago, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and a lot of the Northeastern uh, industrial factories and, and, and areas. And at the same time, when your mind emptied the country out of a lot of poor people and then changed the agrarian society to an where that was basically farming and sugar uh, to a manufacturing society. And so that was a real large, and my mother came in a ship that I, thought was very important for uh, our folks to understand, our folks being the Puerto Rican community, the Marine Tiger, which was used in World War II to transport soldiers, and then was uh, transformed into transporting workers into the mainland, really into New York. The ship held about uh, a little under a thousand people as they transported them back and forth. And uh, my mother came in one of those ships. In fact, before she passed away, I gave her a copy of the manifest, and she wanted more and more copies of the manifest to see her name uh, on the ship. Um, and she came, uh, as you indicated, you know, fleeing pretty much embarrassment of being pregnant uh, from a married man in, in her town who was a, a sort of a merchant. He owned a store, a clothing store in her town. And, uh, and the rest is history. She came here and, and she loved me to death. And uh, I am uh, very, very grateful that she tried to make a life for me uh, in New York and then in in the country, but I thought my world revolved around New York until until I went to Washington. <laughs> yeah, uh, and just to stay with that for a minute, uh, you know, you grew up in public housing in Harlem. You talk about in your book about having a lot of fear when you were a young child, like around you know teens to fifteen. What helped you at that time, not just to survive it, but thrive? Uh, Shannon, when we first moved, we, we lived in, you know, what they call a, a one-room occupancy. And uh, and then my mother then got an apartment uh, down on 134th Street. If anybody knows West Side Story, that was the transition of the Irish community and the Puerto community. And so there was that uh, uh, upheaval. Uh, I was very lucky that uh, they put me in a Catholic school. Uh, because the school system really uh, has always been very poor in the transitional phase of the the, the country really wasn't wasn't ready for Spanish speaking citizens by birthright and so it was really a conflict uh, with regard to hey you're speaking Spanish well you know you're not an American citizen then you know you have to speak English and 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 particularly Shannon from your background the Irish were more Americans than the Americans. And so they always demanded that, yeah, we're here and we want everybody to be like us. So that was always that conflict. 
I went through a lot of issues in terms of abuse and so forth in, in that area. I was a sickly kid. And then when I got to public housing, we qualified because of my illness, asthma. And, and that was probably the best transition uh, for us in our lives. It was a brand new building. Uh, I talk about that in my book about Moses transforming New York City into uh, housing projects all over the place and getting rid of tenements. Um, he had a free-for-all uh, that no other uh, developers ever had in this world. And as a result of that, uh, my asthma uh, improved predominantly in an African-American community. And uh, I played baseball with uh, a person who played in the Negro Leagues, and uh, he coached us, and I was, you know, a winning baseball player. My body developed, and, uh, and it was really a wonderful seven years for me. And my whole team was pretty much African-American. We had a few Latinos here and there, but I probably was the only one that stayed with him seven years playing, and he was a great influence in my life. He was a homeless person, by the way, who uh, lived off what he could uh, hustle, uh, when he sold sneakers, in those days, Converse sneakers. I uh, then tried to look for him, and I found out that he did get hired by a local church. He then lived in the suburbs of New Jersey, and he was very successful after that with uh, youth teams and youth programs at the Church of the Masters in Harlem. And he had just died a year before I tried to find him so he could see what I'd become. So it was, uh, it was a good story for me to hear about Leroy Otis. Uh, and he transformed so many lives, a uh, person that probably would never make the first pages of any newspaper, but uh, should have been recognized for his ability and his sports abilities, because he did it in every sport, but baseball was generally his, his number one sport. I... Uh, you know, I, I then got into some problems with gangs. Uh, you know, gangs was territorial issues. Uh, we call them clubs. Uh, police call them gangs. And, uh, and, and then there was a, a transformation on my part. There was a guy by the name of David Wilkerson who was working with teenagers and gangs uh, in New York. And he told the courts that he wanted those kids instead of putting them in youth centers. That was transformative. Gave you a life to understand that God was important in your life and that, you know, you were worth something. And that gave me a considerable amount of motivation to try to succeed, knowing that uh, I had someone up there that was helping me. And so I never, never was afraid after that and took on society and the system. And I think I did it because I saw people that were smarter than I was more capable than I was, and I was getting, you know, uh, uh, moving forward, uh, whether it was in school uh, or whether it was at work, I was moving forward and I saw people who should have had similar opportunities mm. and didn't get them. Oh my gosh. Thank you for that. Wow, there's so much in what you just shared there. Um, and I'm going to go all the way back to the point you made about being bilingual and just the impact that that has on the community and just, you know, the kind of discrimination that you have experienced or that you've seen others experience. And then all the way through you talking about being in a gang and then how you found faith really that saved you, that helped you to realize that you are worthy and, you know, somebody who belongs here and that you're special. I would love to get your thoughts and lived experiences about being 
you know, in this country and and a bilingual citizen and just what are some of the things that our listeners could be more conscientious about or attentive to with our Latino, Hispanic uh, counterparts? Well, you know, the, the, in 1917, uh, when uh, Puerto Ricans were made citizens by birthright, a lot of it, you remember what happened in 17 with World War One. so it's really a process of uh, getting military draft into uh, the military, into the army. Language wasn't really that important. You know, they just weren't fighting people. And all the way uh, to the Korean War, the Korean War was one that uh, uh, specialized in a group of breakers going at the 65th Infantry. And the state of Pennsylvania uh, just recently honored uh, the 65th Infantry uh, of the Korean War, uh, which was a stellar uh, fighting group. Uh, and uh, they even have a highway in uh, Puerto Rico named after the 65th Infantry. So that uh, when we when we come here and we and people weren't prepared for us, we were essentially a very Catholic uh, community. The U.S. is pretty much was a Protestant community. We pretty much only were monolingual, and so we come into a country where it was predominantly predominantly monolingual, also but in English. And there was a shock in terms of you know societal. They weren't prepared for that societal clash. There were lawsuits that came about as a result of that, uh, which have opened up bilingualism not only for us, but for many other countries that have come to. One of the uh, things that people don't realize uh, about the contributions of our community was that uh, there was a precursor to Brown versus Board of Education, which came out of California. And uh, Justice Marshall was involved in that case, and, and, and that case, uh, the Hernandez case, um, was a Cuban and a Puerto Rican who would, they told them they had to send their kid to a Mexican school. They said, what do you mean a Mexican school? And, and their uh, uh, lawsuit was, was started where Marshall was involved, and it was resolved uh, by Governor Warren, who later became Chief Justice Warren, and that was in uh, almost uh, 18 months before the Brown versus Board of Education case. Uh, I think that had a lot of impact upon uh, Marshall when he argued the Brown versus Board of Education case, the Pika Kansas case, where the change in his argument from separate but equal to integration. And since uh, Chief Justice Warren had done it in California, I think it was perfect. So you had a 9-0 decision, which you rarely get uh, in the Supreme Court. And that's what uh, integration uh, really moved in terms of the educational uh, system, uh, even though we still fight about, you know, there's still separation in terms of the urban community and so forth. But it, it was a different uh, way in which uh, I think uh, Justice Marshall saw the need for because separate would never work. And, and, and so we've had a number of cases that have influenced also uh, the United States in the jury system. Um, and there was a case out of Texas uh, where a person committed murder and he was convicted uh, by uh, all white jury. And the Mexicans were considered white in the system of Texas, but they had never had a Mexican born or a Mexican ancestry person on a jury. And this was again in 1954, and Chief Justice Warren was also the, the, the chief of the court. 
And there was an argument about the issue of, hey, you've never had anybody from our class in a jury. And that case, again, was 9-0. In fact, one of the justices uh, leaned over when the argument was and said, I know about those wet backs. So, you know, not uh, really very uh, cordial to the argument of, uh, of the Mexicans. That changed the issue of... Uh, juries, because now you have juries that also have ethnic balances. So Mexicans were then said, hey, it's a class issue, it's an ethnic issue, so now you, if you try to eliminate people because of race, ethnicity, or otherwise, then that's a, a violation of the Constitution. So that's a big contribution in terms of having a jury of your peers. Uh, the guy was tried again by his peers, he still was convicted, but, you know, it changed the, it changed the law. And so, that, you know, so, that, so we've had a number of uh, opportunities to con make contributions uh, that essentially have helped the society and the society become more and more integrated in terms of the ideas of what we believe the uh, dream of the Constitution, which is, you know, life, liberty uh, for all. And uh, I, I think that uh, a lot of people really haven't known about that because if you take a survey, everybody thinks that all of the Latinos just got here the other day and came over the border. And uh, there's more than 60, some 68 percent of most Latinos are born in the U.S. And right now, a lot of the Latinos coming in are really Venezuelans as a result of the Venezuela issue. About a million have come in in the last few years and not necessarily Mexicans. Uh, um, so that the population continues to change and the lack of understanding of the civil rights struggles continue to change. And so when somebody hears, oh, Florida, all Latinos were voting on the conservative side, well, it's because they come from a dictatorship background. And so that sort of believe on the conservative side of the issue and not the socialist side of the issue. Um, and while you'll see in California, many of them vote on the liberal side, and that's a lot because they understand the civil rights struggles and the struggles that they've had to bear since the 1500s. Um, the Latinos have been here since the 1500s, and, and poor Ricans have been here since 1898 when the Spanish-American War. Uh, so it's not a, a recent arrival, but it's a, a recent struggle in terms of the ethnicity, the uh, language, the values, and so forth that have uh, essentially knocked us. Wow. And that's just an important history and context to keep in mind. And I'm, I'm, the question after this one is, do you think it's getting better? But let's just stay in the past for a minute because... <laughs> that's a tough one. That's a tough <laughs> because <work. laughs> you faced considerable discrimination yourself in Philadelphia, like passing the bar. And I'm curious to learn, was there a particular experience that helped you to learn and grow and... You know, who along that journey are you grateful for? Good point, because we don't get there by ourselves. And and, and we have people that uh, really open also doors for us and make things possible. I don't know if you know the history of the uh, bar in Pennsylvania. Philadelphia Bar is obviously the oldest uh, bar in the country. But between 1776 and 1972, there were only 67 African-Americans that passed the bar. Uh, no Latino had ever passed the bar. There have been some Latinos 
who practice under a special category of serving the poor or through a, another transition, but no one, none of them had passed the bar. Uh, a man by the name of Peter Leocorus, who became the dean of Temple, who recruited me to Temple, who then became the president of Temple, had a committee set up by the Bar Association, and that committee was made up of uh, some African-American judges and some uh, leaders of the Bar Association, and they determined that the bar exam was discriminatory. They determined that uh, when uh, an African-American applied, you know, you had pictures. And so as soon as the African-American applied, you know, they just failed them. And then there were two pictures that they sort of took an uh, exam again and so forth and so on. And so there was a continuation of the limitations of African-Americans in Pennsylvania. The other thing is there were no, uh, no African-Americans in the uh, bar, in the uh, uh, law firms in Philadelphia. As a result, the bar exam changed uh, because of that finding. And uh, now we've had thousands of people from all different backgrounds to pass the bar, African-Americans, uh, Hispanics, uh, and so forth. Also, uh, the firms uh, have... Uh, done a little better, not great, but a little better in hiring uh, women and minorities to the law firm. Uh, even women uh, weren't allowed or got into the law firms here. So uh, I'll give you an example. Joe Coleman, who was the Secretary of Transportation, graduated in top of the class at Harvard, and uh, he couldn't get a job in Philadelphia, so he got a job in New York. And uh, after that period of time, he came trying to get back to Philadelphia, and uh, Bill Worth Paxson, who was, he was the main partner in the firm, was one of the first uh, to come into a major law firm in Philadelphia, and uh, Dilworth was always concerned right. about having, you know, Protestant Jews, Catholics, and uh, people of different backgrounds. So they tried to vary the firm, and that's essentially how Coleman came. Coleman was involved in the 1954 case, by the way, Brown versus Board of Education, and so forth. Uh, uh, after 72, you see the growth of uh, judges, uh, particularly African-American judges, on the courts, uh, particularly the municipal and then the common police court. Uh, and now you have a considerable number of African-Americans on the court that you didn't have. Uh, you, you had maybe three or four women when I was on the court. Uh, now you have a considerable number of women on the court. So the changes have been gradual, but Peter Leopoldis had a lot to do with opening the bar. Uh, I keep telling him he made a great investment. He talked me into coming to Temple, and uh, we essentially changed the law school by forming the Black Law Student Association and then the Latino Law Student Association, which got the dean fired because he flunked out two-thirds of all people who attended the law school. And uh, and then uh, when I was at, the, at a law firm, at the Jewish law firm, which is the first firm that I, I was able to get into, we uh, counted votes for him to become president on the eighth vote. Uh, he became president of Temple and served 16 years. And Temple has never been the same after 
we have never had a president any better than he. Uh, he was really committed to human rights and social rights and somewhat controversial at the same time. Uh, and I, I, I appreciated that uh, we had a great relationship. He, he treated me as a son because I would argue with him all the time and, and I would criticize him and uh, even press releases against him and he still held me close uh, and, and, and didn't uh, throw me away. He, I said, why don't you take me into the law school? He says, well, I saw your accounting background and I saw you, you know, you, you finished the top of your class, so you had to have some intelligence. You had to be smart enough to make it to the law school, so that's why I got you here. And he told me, there's a community that we want you to work with and so forth. I tried to leave to New York, by the way, right after law school. I, just, I, had, the, I had a good offer in New York. I had no offers in Philadelphia. The, the reason I stayed is once you finish what you started. So I said, okay, I'll do, I'll stand on the five years. Well, it's 50 plus years and I'm still here. He was a great influence and he got me my first job, which was a public defender. Uh, not making much money, but uh, it gave me a considerable amount of experience uh, in the law. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you for that recap of just your personal experience and those who opened doors for you and how you've continued to open doors for others. Um, you know, you, you're also the first Puerto Rican White House fellow, and you worked for Vice President Mondale, who I know was a mentor of yours, somebody who who really opened doors for you too. Could you just share maybe a story or two about Vice President Mondale? Well, you know, in, in, in that period of time, I was suing everybody. Uh, that was the way I thought I could get uh, things done. I sued the federal government for the uh, entry into uh, federal employment, which was a discriminatory test. I won that one also. And and so I thought the way you resolve things. So the White House fellow had been predominantly uh, a male Anglo-Saxon program that was established after the Vietnam War to try to bring young people to understand government since there was this dichotomy between the anti-Vietnam War and the fact that many uh, just felt the government was not a possibility for them. So Johnson started the program in 68. Uh, 1968, and then and, 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 uh, I applied because I wanted to file a lawsuit uh, to try to open the doors for that. Uh, there was another woman that applied with me who, who did file a lawsuit, and uh, it opened it up for a woman. So two of us who are still alive, I applied, and uh, Carter won the election, so there was a totally different commission. One of the founders was the chairman of the commission, and for some reason, they selected me. So the bad news was that I couldn't follow lawsuit. The good news was that here I was in the program and got to work for Mondale. And Mondale gave me a lot of rope uh, to hang myself on. There were no Latinos uh, in the White House working on Latino issues. So I decided, let me do that. So I did the last bilingual education bill. I did a disability bill, which uh, involved the buses, you know, that go up and down now instead of having transportation otherwise, uh, which was an influence from, from a person from Philadelphia. And I met people who have been my friends ever since, uh, Federico Pena, who became the Secretary of Transportation, uh, was the one that wrote the bill that, that I submitted and passed Congress and Jimmy Carter used in his State of the Union address. Um, and, and I organized uh, Latino leadership 
And because of all of that, um, I was able to get someone to come into the White House and be a permanent uh, source of Latino uh, programs and policies. And the first person who did that was a person by the name of Esteban Torres, who later became a congressman from uh, California. And he had a, a great staff. And ever since then, they've had someone they're working on Latino issues. And then we've grown. We were only a million summit. I thought we were big then, uh, but now we're about uh, 25 million in the U.S. Uh, and, and, and so that has uh, really propagated a lot of the programmatic effort on both parties, by the way. So before uh, the vice president died, uh, about a year before, I went to see him. Uh, he endorsed my book, and I wanted to show my appreciation. And uh, and I said, look, you know, I thought I got away with a lot. You know, I bring these people into the White House, and, you know, and I push these legislations and all that other stuff. And uh, I, I think, I, you know, I did things that I didn't consult with anybody, just got away with it. And he said, no, so you didn't get away with anything. We were watching you all the time. And so... Uh, and then the other the other area that I thought he was so supportive of me was he talked to me. He said, sometimes you've got to take uh, one step forward and two steps back, and you've got to know how to be more conciliatory. And he was. You know, he had his differences with Jimmy Carter. Uh, there was one that I can give you an example of. Uh, we were on our way to California to prepare for a birthday party for Jimmy Carter. And while in, in the plane, he gets news that Jimmy Carter had announced that he was selling some airplanes to Saudi Arabia. And that would seem to be a, a big issue among the Jewish community. And we're going to L.A. to start a development party for him. Well, it was a beacon of the Jewish community in L.A. So he had a choice. He said, you know, do I turn this plane around and go back home? Do I tell everybody I disagree? Oh, what do I do? So Hamilton Jordan, who was then the uh, chief of staff of uh, Jimmy Carter, was on the plane. And uh, they worked it out. And they said, well, what we're going to do is scrap the plans for the development of the birthday party. And we're going to meet with the Jewish community and let the Jewish community know and explain to them, you know, why we did this and why we had to do it. So we got a big, big auditorium with about, you know, maybe 20 or 30 Jewish leaders instead of uh, instead of what we were going to do. You know, Mondale supported uh, the president uh, throughout that, and, and that gives you a significance of loyalty that occurred between him and, uh, and he was the first vice president to be in the White House and the first uh, vice president to have really a dialogue, a continued relationship and lunch and change the, the focus of the vice presidency, not just being one to go to funerals, but uh, one that had some uh, uh, policy determination, policy participation. Uh, so I learned a heck of a lot. I knew nothing about politics. I thought the world revolved around New York City and Philadelphia. So, you know, everybody assumes that Wall Street, you know, moves the world. And uh, he took me to Chapultepec. Uh, over with the Mayan uh, pyramids were. And when I saw that, 5,000 years ago, there were people who were civilized who lived there. Uh, you know, 1492 didn't become very relevant to me anymore. And I realized that the world was bigger than that. And that's when I got involved uh, in human rights throughout the world. You know, I, I got arrested in Russia for doing human rights activities. I did some work in Peru. Uh, 
this will work in Mexico, uh, and so forth. So the, the world got a lot bigger. I started the uh, Latino Jewish Coalition, working with regard to understanding the relationship thereof, and, and that continues to be a, a major uh, program in the nation and in Philadelphia. And so that, that, that uh, really was pivotal. In my in my life, that one trip in 1978, a snowy day in Washington D.C., where I got picked up by the Secret Service to go onto the plane because the, they wanted me to get there on time. So you talk about the trappings of not having to go through tachometers; just just get on a plane. Yep, yep. <laughs> You're already already you know sanctioned to fly with them. Um, so that tough question of, is it getting better? You know, you've seen a lot of history. You've been a big player in that history. I'm curious to get your perspectives on where we are now and how all of us, all of us listening, all of us contemplating equality and inclusion and belonging and, you know, true integration. Like how, like, what are your thoughts on current, current state? I thought we were making some headway when Obama got elected, and I thought I could uh, sort of relax a little bit in, in terms of the issues, both in Puerto Rico, because Puerto Rico has never been treated as an equal uh, nation or an equal population or other communities. And so I thought we're getting better, but the statistics have proved me wrong. There is more anti-Semitism today than we've had uh, probably in 20 years. There is uh, a lot of anti-feelings uh, against uh, Latinos that uh, are stronger today. People speak more about the uh, backlash on blacks. Uh, the Supreme Court has made decisions that were not controversial before these last years. And now uh, it's been tough, you know, the affirmative action issue, um, I, I don't understand Clarence Thomas, for example, and, and his votes, uh, but, you know, he's a product of affirmative action. Affirmative action has existed a long, long time for other communities. It's not only been a black issue, the affirmative action has existed for women, for whites, uh, and, you know, the legacy issues in, in universities uh, has existed uh, for a long time. And so that that tended to me to be somewhat of a, a contradiction in our approach in America to try to bring you know, the economic poor and try to resolve them and bring them into the middle class, which is what happened. And I'm the beneficiary of that, what happened in the, in the 60s after Martin Luther King's death. We developed a, a middle class, both African-American and Latino, middle class as a result of it. And I, I believe they've made major contributions back into the society. And so I, I, I'm really not only upset, but uh, skeptical about where we are going and how we're going. We have the climate issue, which uh, is difficult. And some people don't believe that climate is changing. I hope they realize that as a result of the summer, we've had uh, triple digits uh, weathers all around the country. We've had uh, all these glaciers that are melting and the water rising. And still people don't believe in our investment and the need for the 
or the climate change. So I'm worried about the next generation. Uh, we're also somewhat, our kids are somewhat addicted to the internet and the iPhone. Um, and so I'm worried about our, our next generation. Um, I'm hoping that, uh, like we always said, oh, you know, when we did things, <laughs> we'd always talk about us and we knew what we knew now. And hopefully, uh, we can uh, bring about some interest in many of those issues and have more participation. Um, I think uh, John F. Kennedy was a great influencer in many of us in the participation of civic rights and civic issues and constitutional issues. He motivated many of us. I mean, if you go to Puerto Rico, you still see Kennedy's pictures in everybody's home in the Peace Corps, if you remember, one that uh, so many of us wanted to be a part of, to be able to contribute whatever we knew to other countries and other nations. We have not had that inspiration coming from, from anyone. Um, I talk to a lot of kids and I tell them about, Peter, please read my book because what I want you to know is at 15 years old, your life is not over. You know, at 15, you know, I was somewhat illiterate in two languages, you know, but when I found myself and understood what I could do, I dug myself into it and I have not stopped since. Um, it's so important for you to realize that life in the U.S., if you strive, if you push, if you become morally correct, uh, you can do a lot of things within this population, this community. And so I, I try to motivate kids with regard to that. And uh, and I've had some success in, in, in terms of a lot of mentees that I've had and some success in talking to uh, people on the board level. I'll give you an example, and, and we are talking about it earlier, which is that uh, when I was on the Exelon board, uh, you're supposed to be collegial, and you're supposed to work collegially. Well, I didn't know that. I thought that you know, you're supposed to be answerable to the board. So I would ask questions that were very difficult, like, you know, what are you doing in terms of minority hiring? What are you doing in terms of procurements and, and, and so forth? And uh, I was very fortunate to be able to get a person hired, a lawyer hired, who believed in me and believed in my issues. And so he was able to transfer and translate those issues to the CEO, which uh, we were able to make a difference. So uh, we, we became a, a better company by doing the procurements, doing the hiring. And in fact, uh, I retired just about a month ago. And uh, last uh, year ago, last February, when they split up the company, part of the company was led by an African-American, a guy named Calvin Butler uh, from Chicago. The other part was led by my mentee, uh, Joe Dominguez, who was essentially uh, a lawyer in Philadelphia, went to Rutgers Camden. He's now the CEO of Constellation. Constellation right now is the largest, cleanest energy producer in the United States. And when he took the company over, $28 a share, today it was over $100 a share. I'm very proud of him. And I'm very proud of the ability to show that other people can make those contributions as well. Um, and, and, and 
I kept saying, look, there are people who are smarter than I was who didn't get the opportunity. Let's try to mentor those. So when Joe got in, it's because I told the uh, CEO, can't you mentor a Latino? He said, give me one. So I gave him one and look at him now. He's a... I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't even go to dinner with him anymore. He's too busy. (laughs) (laughs) You just created a problem for your friendship. (laughs) But I love that whole idea about you know asking challenging questions and also building that collaborative space where you're not just answering to the board; you're actually problem solving together. That's one of the big things I just took from your example. Sometimes the CEO don't the CEOs don't like that a lot. They want you to be you know sort of shut your mouth. Uh, uh-huh. Here's my report. Take the report. Um, and 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 I said to myself, you know, they could have put anybody else on the board. They put me on, so there got to be a reason uh-huh. why I'm here, and I've got to use what I know best to try to make this company yeah. better. And I think you make a better uh-huh. company better. By bringing about some diversity. Yeah, absolutely. And most companies that have diversity, by the way, are more successful. Those that have more women on the board and more diversity on the board have been more successful. It's a great encouragement. Thank you. And just your own lived experience through that. So at the end of every episode, we recap just some highlights of things that our listeners can do to apply to their own lives. So, you know, you've lived an extraordinary life. So I don't know that people can follow exactly in your footsteps, but some of the the key lessons that you've shared with us. One of them was with your experience with Vice President Mondale, where you said sometimes you have to take steps backwards before you take steps forward. So I just think for all of us to think about where in our own lives might we be uh, wise to take a step back in order to advance, so being strategic about that. Um, You talked about finding what motivates you and then digging in and not stopping. Like you said, you know, even at the age of 15, like it's certainly not over. It's really the beginning. But even if you're 55 and you're just hearing this for the first time or whatever stage of life you're in, for us to be thinking about what, how can we invest in the things that we care about? Like that return on generosity is finding a way to make a contribution. And then another big theme. And Shannon, and Shannon, to add to that is, you know, you, you can't have fear of losing what you have. I tell everyone, you know, I came from Harlem. I lived in public yep. housing. I was extremely poor. What can they do to me? I can't afford to go back to Harlem. It's too expensive now. So, You know, what can they do to you if you have principles and if you really uh, push the envelope? Uh, You can't have fear of losing what you have. And you have to have you have to believe that you're doing the right thing, even if you fail. Someone else may make that difference Mm. in the future and you may have laid the groundwork. We can't top that, Nelson. That's just beautiful. Thank you for opening doors and for being the person you are. I'm so deeply grateful for you and your contribution. Remember, there are no U-Hauls in funerals. (laughs) Thank you for being here, Nelson. (laughs) Thank you, Shannon. It's really wonderful to be able to spend time with you. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Anything you need, uh, I'd love to to help you. And uh, it's been fun talking with you. Uh, It's a great way of starting the morning. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. 
We grow when we give. 우리는 나누면서 성숙합니다. We grow when we give. 우리는 나누면서 성숙합니다. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.